Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined on this episode by Sports Business Journal's Brett McCormick, who is a staff writer there, covering things like facilities, fan experience, ticketing, and most notably for our audience, tennis. Brett, thank you for being on here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, Probably, I would say you're the tennis reporter I look up to most um, because you cover Uh, more of the messy stuff. Uh, Christopher (laughs) Clary, obviously like the dean of tennis reporting probably, but... You you get in the you get in the the trenches more so, yeah. Thanks for having me on. I, I respect what you do. Oh, thank you very much, and I thank you for coming into my trench. Hopefully, you don't get too muddy <laughs> in here. Uh, so yeah, a bunch of stuff. I I think there's a lot of stuff in tennis, and people may have seen my tweets. I think there's a lot of stuff in tennis reporting that is under talked about, and I think one of the main things has been the business side of the sport and the governance and the restructuring and all these sorts of things. I think there just aren't the people. I think there are first of all, are the publications, most notably, that I think probably are interested in sort of devoting resources to these investigations and this beat of what's, you know, the backroom kind of stuff on tour. So I'm very grateful for the stuff you've been doing of keeping, you know, a, a foot in that world uh, among your other beats. Uh, and there's a lot of, it's been a very interesting, dynamic, confusing time in tennis governance in the last couple of years during the pandemic. And so a bunch of different stuff I want, to, I want to hit on through there that sort of touches on a bunch of your existing reporting for Sports Business Journal. Let's start pretty broadly. Like the uncertainty of how things are going in the pandemic, obviously, you know, there's still stuff going on this week about in Australia, about how the Australian Open will have their, what kind of entry requirements there will be from both the immigration officials at the federal level and for the tournament in terms of vaccination. Uh, so that's going on in on one side, but just more generally, like the calendar still is kind of in flux. Uh, during the pandemic, there's lots of pop-up tournaments every week, you know, sort of small one-off events. And I talked, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with Danny Valverde, who was one of the organizers of the San Diego Open. And we talked about sort of the, pen, the pendulum swinging back from the really hard, especially on the women's side, uh, swing towards China and Asia uh, in the calendar towards coming back in the situation towards more traditional markets for tennis, like the U.S. and Europe, uh, getting more, a bigger share again of the calendar. How, what do you sense in terms of if this is all just a short-term fix or if things will revert to normal or if it's going to be some new place that we see whenever the other side of the pandemic is, which assumes there is another side of it and it won't go on forever. Yeah. What do you, what do you see about how this has shifted sort of the, the calendar and the way the sport looks and, and travels around the globe? Yeah, I think tennis fans need to like uh, acknowledge that or take a step back and realize that their sport has probably been impacted more by the pandemic maybe than any professional sport. I mm-hmm. mean, because most uh, most professional sports, like you could say soccer has been affected because it's a global sport, but there's really not that global competition um, yeah. that's been hit like tennis has. Golf would almost be there, but really they don't, you know, the PGA doesn't really travel outside the U.S. like that much, if at all. Yeah. Uh, so F1 is another one, but again, you know, there's so much money in that sport. There's so many fewer participants, you know, that it's, not the same. So tennis has really taken it on the chin. And that's kind of, I think, put everything on the table. I, I don't know exactly where the WTA stands on China, but that has to be something that they're looking at. The The draw to China was always the money. Um, yeah. And, you know, they have to, I think they have to reconsider if that's, if that's worth it, because it is difficult to put uh, your eggs 
so many eggs in one basket, you know, and, yeah. and um, I think, you know, there is a lot of logic in, in structuring a calendar geographically, but also, you know, this, this is, this is uh, raised questions about like, is that the best way to do it? And, and so you kind of have to think like, could something like this happen again? Should we like be more future proof? So that's definitely, I think something that'll be considered. There's obviously like contracts involved and some of those in China are very lengthy. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there is maybe only so much they can do, but no, I think those things will be considered. I think there will be uh, quite a few tournament sanctions up for grabs on both tours. Uh, I think there will be um, events that, that don't make it out of this or, yeah. uh, you know, that where the owners have had second thoughts, maybe that the event, you know, didn't struggle so bad, but the the owner maybe took it on the chin and, you know, has is, is, uh, lost their interest in, in <laughs> ever risking that again. So I think yeah. there'll be some some churn on the uh on both both tour calendars you know as far as stops i th- i mean it was an opportunity for some of these events to kind of stand out but you know you'll see that for some uh they either don't have the wherewithal to do this or it was just too difficult i mean think about like last year lexington really yeah. kind of made a big splash by helping the wta come back and from what I had heard, it, it was not something they were interested in doing ever again. <laughs> so um, they also, I don't think they had the facilities to do it. You know, they would have to invest and create a stadium court and, and do things like that. They may not have yeah. been prepared to do that because, you know, we're still in the pandemic. So um, there is absolutely going to be some churn. And I, I kind of wonder if, you know, I I don't know, it's it's tough to to have such geographically concentrated portions of the calendar but then again you sort of like need to do that because it you have independent contractors who can't necessarily play ping pong across the globe every week so right it's it, again it's like a unique very complicated difficult nature of professional global tennis i mean it's just sort of in a tight unique spot that a lot of other sports just don't have to cope with yeah completely and tennis you know the global nature of tennis is both a weakness and a strength yeah, uh, you for know, sure. throughout its time. And and I've got to say, I've enjoyed this fall, you know, having more, a greater share of tournaments be happening during plausible waking hours for me as someone who lives on the U.S. East Coast, whereas, you know, to watch your Shanghai or Beijing or Tokyo, you would really have to pull all-nighters if you're actually dedicated to following those events. And it, it that's not something most sports require of their fans to do. Uh, most sports are, you know, more much more convenient. And tennis is still across a wide, you know, swath of the world, uh, even in its without going into East Asia, but it's, you know, a little bit tighter there. Do you think that these tournaments that are having trouble, like a couple, bunch of tournaments are, have missed two editions now. Right. Like Auckland, for example, which has been a pretty strong opening week. I mean, small, but very sturdy opening week is missing a second week in a row. Sorry, second year in a row in 2022. They're already off the calendar. Houston has missed two years in a row. Uh, there's a few other examples of that, and you just want—I don't know, like how these tournaments will be able to rebound, if ever, and how much. And Brisbane, even, which is another really strong event. Uh, who knows if they'll be able to hold, have tennis there uh, in 2022? Either they haven't announced that yet. That's a tournament I've been to a lot of times. So, yeah, I—I just—I wonder if if you see sense like a feeding frenzy for sanctions, or sort of reimagining how more sanctions happen. Like I—I I like this idea that they did this year of having sanctions be on a more flexible basis sort of a la carte basis so you could kind of get one for one year and i think that would actually really respond really well to tennis you know uh if there was a situation like stefano Tsitsipas becomes the top 10 player for greece and you could then put an atp event in athens you know six months after that happens 
like for one yeah. year to sort of capitalize on that momentum. I think that would be really positive. For, it's an interesting for idea. Dynamic. Like, yeah, exactly. I think and, and more flexible because part of what you part of what the pandemic has uh, rammed home is, you know, that that sports, professional sports organizations, leagues, teams, businesses need to be more flexible. You have to kind of bake in some some leeway in case the worst uh, global health crisis in a generation happens, you know, mm-hmm. which uh, based on how the planet is going may happen more, you know, like the more that humans and animals come into contact, I mean, these types of weird things will happen. So I think that, you know, I think the tours would be reticent about that because I think they like having the um, the sanction money locked in. They like to, you know, it helps with sponsors, you know, solidity and stability are the friend of business obviously so yeah. um, from that aspect i think it's less likely but also i think about like last season in college football which you know the 2020 college football season was a total mess but you did end up like at the end of the season with and you know overseas <laughs> tennis fans may not this may not mean anything to them but you had these two smaller schools that at the end of the year were ranked very highly and had games that got canceled and on a whim arranged a game like two days later and played this like really interesting game that ESPN covered. And, you know, it did really well ratings wise and it was two of the best teams in the country. And, you know, some people were saying like maybe college football could use like a, a buffer week at the end, you know, where you could fill a game that could help you, you know, get more notoriety or whatever. So yeah. I, there's, there are some like situations that arose during the last uh, like year and a half that have kind of shown that there, there is uh a positive aspect to kind of having that flexibility built in. Um, yeah. I definitely think there'll be some tournament sanctions up for grabs. I really would. And we're going to talk about the strategic plan, I think, but um, I think yeah. at the 250 level, there's going to be a lot going on because, you know, if the plan passes, 250s have a harder go of it than anybody, obviously uh, on the tournament side. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of changes going on right now that there may be some people who just uh, don't see a future for themselves at that level. So I yeah. and like you said, the tournaments you mentioned are are on the smaller side. So I mean, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential for um, some new events uh, next year. Yeah, for sure. One of the other trends that's been happening, or the conversations that started happening pretty early during the shutdown, I think in April, maybe May of 2020, was this idea of the tours joining forces and this tennis united movement that was sort of sparked in this still weird moment of of Roger Federer sort of putting this like musing tweet out into the world being like, I wonder what would happen if they combined forces, which felt very pseudo organic and how that was dropped. I don't think Federer does anything that sort of, uh, exactly. Casual. Nothing by, nothing by accident with that. No, no. So, but there has been real movement behind the scenes. Maybe not that people are seeing, maybe people actually are seeing this a bit on social media. You know, they're doing these like tennis United videos, Yeah. you know, also on the content side, like a lot of cross posting of like articles on both websites. You might, people might notice, you know, uh, articles that are being used on, on both tours and more cross-linking. And you reported, obviously, the tours, or I mean, obviously, but you reported in Sportsman's History and all the tours marketing and social media efforts were joined earlier this year and brought under sort of dual supervision from ATP and WTA. Uh, that also is, you know, that's one sort of smaller, but still significant considering how completely independent from each other those two organizations were before. Uh, and you also report on there being possibilities that the two could be bought by the same sort of outside group of investors to further bring them together. So what, what can you tell us about where the sort of ATP WTA uh, union is, has gone so far in the last uh, 18 months or so and where it could be headed? 
Yeah. Well, and one other thing that um, you didn't mention, and I don't, I don't think it got a lot of run on social media because I was in Las Vegas that week that that um, stuff came out, and I don't think I posted it. They're planning to have a uh, joint WTA ATP app ready by mm. the end of the year. Right. Hmm. That would be probably the most noticeable um, of anything you mentioned. You know, I think a lot of this stuff is kind of behind the scenes, so you'll you'll never really see it. I mean, some of it is basically cost cutting and like duplicitous jobs were sort of yeah. eliminated, which kind of makes sense because it gets, you know, I'm not necessarily always for that, but like at this point in time, economically, after what they've come through, I mean, that makes sense that they're looking at things like that. And then also to, to try to join these two groups together closer. I mean, you need your messaging and your front porch, so to speak, to be yeah. more united, you know, and social media these days is like the way to do that um so it makes a lot of sense that they would be promoting each other um and kind of <clears throat> sharing content and um rejoicing in the successes of each other's athletes um yeah and then as far as the outside investment um uh that was funny when i asked god Denzi about that the other week he said uh he was like oh the thing that got leaked in the summer so he didn't say like no 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 you know that was that's bullshit or that wasn't that wasn't the case or anything. He wouldn't say mm -hmm. that anyway. He's he's very uh, you know <laughs> he's he's Italian. He's very put together. But um yeah I mean he didn't he didn't say he didn't say no you know I mean so I think uh, they're considering um they're considering like everything. This, can you explain a bit more what that is what we're talking about here what that uh, that venture would entail. Yeah there was um there was a private equity group that was gonna put a lot of money into the two tours um you know by i i'm almost certain it would have been still minority stakes but i mean it was hundreds of millions of dollars i don't have it right off the top of my head but um and then it kind of just went silent like I, you know i never heard anything else about it i didn't i didn't really you know there there wasn't much follow-up after that so i think they're still you know considering um those those types of things he had um reading right here something he told me he said um you know, the WCA and the ATP, like, they want to combine um, in the right ways, which is mostly commercially, mm -hmm. and, adv and advance the sport, you know, together. And he said, um, the biggest question is, are we capable of doing that by ourselves or do we need external help? Yeah. I thought that was a good way to frame it because it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there is a lot of private equity money going around right now. The, the pandemic created this situation where not only did you have, like, distressed assets, you know, that people could kind of, like, buy up other companies that were in deep trouble, but mm -hmm. you also have a lot of companies that are in pretty strong situations that just were thinking about things differently. Like, you know, okay, we're doing well, but, um, you know, maybe some of our competitors wobbled a bit, and with some outside investment, we could really, like, put our foot to the metal and, like, you know, surge ahead or, or something yeah. like that. So I would say that's kind of, like, where they were going with that and i don't i would be surprised if that's the last we heard of that i would not be surprised at all if there was a a uh, combined investor because in a way that is also another way of financially kind of combining the tours you know if you've got this this entity that has a uh stake in in a joint interest yeah that's been one of the solutions i think people talk about sort of you know we talk, we've talked on the podcast before about like the seven kingdoms of tennis you know being the atp wta itf and then the four slams uh mm -hmm one of the ways they could unite meaningfully is if someone came in and bought them all, you know, like that would be, yeah. it would take a lot of money and a lot of, I'm not sure they would all, how much they would all willingly, you know, sacrifice the autonomy that they all really have staked out very stubbornly. 
but uh, that would be a way to yeah, unite things for sure and speed things along. And there have been growing pains for sure, like in terms of the ATP WTA sharing content. Uh, you mentioned sort of, <laughs> you alluded to this earlier, but mentioning like like Zverev, for example, has been a thorny thing for this yeah. cross content. The WTA does not want to be promoting Zverev uh, this right. year. And put out briefly, very briefly, put out an uh, Instagram post uh, congratulating him for winning the gold medal in Tokyo. And then pretty quickly took that down after their fans were pretty uh, yeah. upset by that. Uh, so, and But whereas ATP is still sort of standing by him, it, it's this whole, that's one sort of obviously more glaring example of where there's cross interests or cross sort of priorities. Or they'll have to, they'll have to feel that out though. I mean, that could have been yeah. the WTA person might've been on, might've been off the clock that weekend, you know, and that might've been yeah. somebody, you know, that had been with the ATP that, that was posting that and maybe not thinking about that audience as much. No, those are, I mean, those are very glaring mistakes when you kind of misread yeah. that situation. You mentioned Godenzi in your last answer, Andrea Godenzi, who's one of, who's the chairman of the ATP, chairman. I believe. Yeah. And then there's also the chief executive who is Massimo Calvelli. Those two roles were previously held by the same person, uh, Chris Kermode, who was the chairman and CEO uh, before he was not re-signed, I guess is the best way to say it, after a bit of a, a board pushed ouster uh, a couple years ago. I have not met or actually even spoken to either Godenzi or Calvelli during this whole quarantine time. Uh, mostly just haven't been on tour and they haven't been on tour either the couple times I've been or at least haven't been made available and ATP has not put them up for interviews on topics like Zverev, like vaccination requirements and ATP player, you know, uh, reluctance to get vaccines. They're not putting those, at least to me, they're not putting those guys out there. I'm curious what you we make of them. You sort of referred to them as sort of being, you know, tidy Italians before, but what do you make of, uh, of their leadership and their style and also maybe how they're dividing up the roles that were previously between two people and, and, and also what kind of, you know, what kind of response they're getting from players uh, this far into their tenure. Yeah. So the, regarding the roles, I'm pretty sure this, I, you know, I don't, I don't know this a hundred percent, but I would say the way they're split up is Godinzi is more public facing and bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And Calvelli is more internal and day to day. Pretty, I feel pretty confident saying that. Okay. How they've been received, uh, I wouldn't say that's gone great. I mean, you know, pour one out for Godenzi because he, you know, like you mentioned, the board, the previous board kind of shoved Kermode out. Um, Godenzi was brought in by them, uh, essentially as the replacement they wanted. He uh, ran for this, or he interviewed for this job on a a uh, 35,000 foot version of the strategic plan, like a shorter, mm-hmm. you know, like an eight page deck as opposed to the 90 page one or whatever. Um, so this was what he was brought in to do. Um, and then, you know, like essentially from day one of his job, the pandemic was a factor already, you know, yeah. in, in the, in Asia. Um, and then, you know, the players got pretty impatient pretty quickly and tournaments, I think it did as well. Um, you know, with the tours being shut down and there was a lot of financial suffering and, and then the PTPA happened, you know. So, I mean, to his credit, he's really had a kind of an unfortunate go of it uh, as far as the timing of everything, um, yeah. especially given that he had really like a vote of support from everybody being brought in, you know, like he pitched this plan and they were like, let's do it. So I think he has a lot of frustration about that, um, understandably. And, and I think with the you know, they, they didn't take um, pay cuts last year, which, you know, was kind of like a PR 
own goal. I mean, yeah. you, I don't know why you wouldn't have done that. Everybody in a leadership position on the planet was doing that, you know, and then yeah. that would have, that would have looked better. Um, they'd probably have reasons for that, but I don't, I don't know what they were that didn't come off very well. Um, so I don't, and you know, and then he had the, uh, apparently had the outburst with, uh, Pospisil at the, was it the French open? You know, uh, which Miami. that doesn't Miami, Miami. Yeah. Yeah. Miami. Where Pospisil that, was yeah, whining about it the next or the next day. Whining is maybe hard for yeah. him. Was still, was still injured by it. Let's say the next day. Yeah, I kind of love the idea of the of the um no no impossible being like what's up buddy and him just kind of unloading on this, <laughs> you know, which was interesting because I still feel Vashik is a is a nice guy, you know, regardless of what people think about him. But um, but that seemed calculated to me because that's the only way we would have known about that, you know, like nobody nobody knew that occurred and uh, he he really kind of uh, pulled the curtain back on on. Uh, got Enzi chewing him out. And then a bunch of PTPA guys were sort of on, you know, had some sort of hashtag campaign rallying behind him later that week. Yeah. You know, showing right, support right. for Vashik. And yeah, let's get to PTPA. It's, we sort of alluded to it a few times. In one of your articles, you quote what Enzi sort of saying, you know, here's a quote. As soon as the pandemic struck, I had the feeling, okay, this is either going to divide or unite. And I think the initial step has been to divide. He's sort of referring to, you know, tennis, instead of growing closer, in always, and obviously the ATP and WTA have gotten closer, uh, but in terms of this players versus management side, has been he refer, compared it to a divorce, um, and says he said and, he said a a couple, and I don't want to do his Italian accent because it might be <laughs> it might be nope. demeaning, but a couple close to divorce is what he is what he said he inherited, you know, as far yeah. as the players and the tournament's relationship, and I thought that was pretty telling. Which, yeah, and I will say I talked to people who were in the running for that job or consider thought about putting themselves in the running or for the ATP job to replace Kermode. And a bunch of them said that they had been told by their, you know, other, you know, friends or colleagues or advisors who sort of knew the situation, like, don't do this. Like, this is not the time. This is not a good situation you're walking into. This is not a household that is going to be welcoming or, you know, setting you up to thrive. You know, you go there. It it was just like, it was a hostile environment. Kermode, I think, most objective measures had done a really solid job with the ATP and he was still mm-hmm. ousted. Yeah. And, and yeah, so it's just a tough deal for anybody, but anyway, so PTPA has emerged in sort of fits and starts, you know, they had their, their start at the 2020 U S open. They did the group photo. Uh, they got immediate flack for having no women in that photo. And but then they have been sort of putting out sporadic details. Uh, and it's tricky, obviously, when a lot of your people are, when your the main faces of your leadership are Vashik and, Novak Djokovic, and they both are still active tour players. But also, like, yeah, it, it, what, what do you make of the rollout so far? It, it's been, they've had a couple of things. They sort of staked this claim during the Wimbledon lead-up of wanting to delay the vote on this strategic plan, which we will get to that plan. And they, and they wanted, and they thought they could probably score sort of victory there, because I think that vote was getting delayed regardless. But yeah, what do you, what do you make of, of the PTPA's whole rollout, and if people should be bullish or not on its, its future as a meaningful participant in... Uh, in tennis governance going so going off of the last year that would not make me bullish yeah their ideas and some of their complaints and and issues with the sport i think are definitely legitimate and need Mm -hmm. um addressing none more than conflicts of interest which are going to hold tennis back while other sports like formula one or soccer or whatever yeah. Blast past them. But I mean, the organization has 
struggled. I mean, the story I wrote is that they're like finally kind of getting their ducks in a row um, after a year of existence. I would say, first of all, they just rushed their launch. I think they got a rush of blood to the head at the U.S. Open and just went for it. And it wasn't organized. They didn't have women on board. They didn't even really have a platform. Uh, They didn't have a staff you know, like you said, it's two players. They're not going to be able to do much, <laughs> given that one of them is arguably the best player ever and pretty busy playing. Yep. They, you know, the launch was just rushed. And then you had, I mean, a couple of months of, uh, I mean, actually like a half a year of radio silence. They were doing some stuff, but nothing public. Um, and then, uh, you know, around, like you said, Miami and then the spring, they started to kind of come to life a little bit. Um uh, but again, have sort of, you know, I mean, haven't really done much. They they told me about big plans to hire and staff up um, ahead of 22. So I really think that tw- this. So if um, the 2020 U.S. Open to the 21 U.S. Open was their first year, uh, I think this second year is make or break. And yeah. it may not even be a whole year that they get because the. Uh, strategic plan is supposed to be voted on by the end of the year, um, which is something that, you know, they talked about postponing the vote. But I mean, they really I mean, it was sort of a uh, what is it, a Pyrrhic victory? It was sort of a empty win because the vote's still probably going to happen. Yeah. Um, and there's still a player council that's voting on things representing players. Um, and so, you know, I it's uh, they're like what they want is a little more clear. Um and they have a website and they have some social media, uh, you know, such as it is. But um, I, you know, I think without like substantial conversations with uh, tours, you know, in the coming months, like soonish, it, it almost is going to just like be like the house plant you forgot to water for mm. a couple of weeks and just sort of peter out. I mean, because they're just not doing anything. And, uh, you know, I would say that's especially true on the women's side. I mean, they really have not, I don't think, have made much ground on the women's side. I mean, I asked the WTA, you know, if they had uh, had any conversations with them and they said they had not even been asked yet, you know, which is sort of crazy to me. I mean, it's like this this is just to to sort of echo what you're saying. And if I'm interrupting you, sorry, Uh, the yeah, the. PTPA leaders have paid sort of lip service to the idea of including women and wanting to include women, but there's absolutely no proof they're doing that on any meaningful level. I talked to, I asked a bunch of top women during Wimbledon, you know, after this PTPA launch, uh, have you had conversations with anyone from PTPA or Novak or anybody, you know, like top relevant players, you know, like Ash Barty, other top tenors, different people who you would think would be the first people you'd talk to if you wanted to, you know, get a groundswell movement going, other members of like WTA Player Council and stuff. And the answer was across the board, and I didn't talk to literally everyone, but a decent sample, it was all very hard no's. You know, like, they, they are not being engaged by the men. The men, I'm still not convinced that the, the PTPA wants, you know, the to represent the women equally uh, in terms of, I'm not sure they're, they're, you know, those guys want to have the sort of pressure of representing the women jointly and, and fairly and equally. And yeah, the WTA hasn't been engaged either. I think you, you reported that the ATP or, or Gaudenzi has talked a bit with PTP leadership in recent months. Yeah, they but, were supposed to. They met yeah. at um, Indian Wells. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the, if I think back on the last year of pro tennis, I mean, I think the incident 
that most cried out for a uh, effective player representation association was Osaka at the French Open. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean that that was that was such a fastball over the middle for the PTPA to yeah. say, you know, we're behind Naomi Osaka. This is an issue that tennis doesn't take seriously. Uh, you know, it's a it's a sport with independent contractors. It's brutal on your on your brain, your wallet. You know, it wears you down. We're going to be here to support her and like reach out to her and try to, you know, legitimately make a connection with her and and see if they could support her. And I don't know that that didn't happen, but I can guess no. <laughs> that it didn't. I mean, and and so to me that was like a. Also, she's a pretty big name in the sport and uh, would have been a good person to have on on your side. So, you know, I just think that's really going to undermine them um, from from being able to make a big, big difference. Also, uh, you know, like where do they fit? I mean, part of the PTPA question is and and I think one of the bigger questions for and this seems to be a bigger issue on the ATP than the WTA, where uh, I think everybody they have the same issues, but everybody seems to get along better is structure. Like you said, Kermode was widely regarded as pretty good at his job, but he could not succeed because he was in a a lose-lose situation. He's either going to piss off the tournaments or the players, you know. And and so when you have a board that's set up with three from one side and three from the other side, you're putting all the pressure on the seventh, you know, who's supposed to be um, independent and kind of in the middle and playing the umpire, but ends up having to make all the big decisions. So the way the structure of the tour, um, you know, like governance is set up is is uh just generates conflict so um you know and that kind of comes back to the ptpa thing because where where do you see them fit and i think when i talked to godenzi he's you know you could see his face um i do like doing zoom calls by the way as a reporter because you get to see people's uh you get to see how people react to things mm-hmm. and his face is like bemused you know like we we have a, a thing that is in place that can represent you yeah. Granted, that could be better. Like, and and uh, you know, I'm not going to say that the way it's set up is effective because it's clearly not. But like, there is an avenue, or there is something there that you could work to improve, instead of just creating, you know, a redundant second thing. And then where does it fit? You know, like, yeah. is it going to replace, or does it sit outside, like, or does it just raise hell and whine a lot, or do, or is it able to actually do anything? So, again, like, it comes back to structural organization chart type type situations you know how, how can tennis move forward with the current structure that it has that that very clearly doesn't work and one name we haven't mentioned uh who has been a big factor in the last five years more than that in tennis governance and obviously fading away now from any official role uh justin gimmelstab who was sort of a longtime board member and was one the one person agitating most for kermode's ouster i think with his own ambitions of getting that job uh once he was ousted from the ATP board, or once he was finally pressured to resign after facing his, you know, violent felony charges, uh, he left the ATP inside structure, and Djokovic, at a similar time, decided that things couldn't be worked out internally anymore and went external. I do think that Gimelstab sort of moving from inside maneuvering to outside maneuvering is also mirrored, or Djokovic has followed that path. You know, Djokovic mm. is now trying to work from the outside, once Gimelstab was on the outside. Um, so, yeah. So, so PTPA, we've learned to, and we can get this done in the next uh, eight minutes or so, hopefully. This strategic plan uh, that has been in the conversation for ATP, tournaments voting on it, a lot of major overhauls, very long-term plan too, like a 30-year like plan. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. What can you can you explain what the strategic plan is and what it entails and why and what what it could do to shift the landscape of the sport? Yeah, the strategic the strategic plan is what Godenzi uh, you know like brought to the table when he interviewed and it, mm-hmm. it's really informed by his uh, professional background which you know involved gaming and media and some other things. He's he's pretty I would say he's pretty savvy and sophisticated when it comes to those types of things. Which you know one of the one of the overarching things in the sports business right now is there's no longer teams uh, or leagues. Everybody is like a media company or a merchandise company or, you know, like mm. these are companies. They, they are yeah. making money in a lot of ways. Sports is sort of like the thing they're built around. Tennis is uh, behind on that for sure. Um, and so because it's so fragmented, you know, the, the pie gets cut up and nobody gets as much. Um, if you think about it this way, regarding one of the big uh, pillars of the uh, strategic plan is to pull media rights. And so for the uninitiated, I mean, if you think about um, if, uh, you know, um, say La Liga in Spain, if um, uh, Real Mallorca, which I think is uh, connected to Nadal, um, mm. decided to take its media rights to the market, you know, by itself, okay, they'd be able to get maybe, let's say, like, for example, like $5. But if they go to the media market as a part of La Liga, which is, you know, I think 18 or 19 other teams, you know, they could probably get $100. So this is the thing that tennis has had to do is they've had these different little tiny cut up pots of, okay, so the 250s had their own pot, but it wasn't even all the 250s. It was some of them. Uh, The 500s finally one day, like, got together and, and created their own pot. And then Masters 1000s were ahead of this on it, you know, more ahead of this um, uh, than anybody, but um, had their own pot as well. So you didn't even come to, and then the Grand Slams were by themselves, and then the WTA was by itself. But you, you just, it's so yeah. cut up that that Davis nobody's Cup getting by itself. And yeah, nobody's getting maximum value out of it. And so what it, one of his grand plans was, and the grandest vision was to have all of tennis uh, sell its rights together. That is probably. <laughs> that's pretty unlikely, I would say, because of the slams. But yeah. even if the ATP and WTA could pull their rights and uh, sell, you know, access to every tournament, uh, that would that would generate a lot of interest in the marketplace. That would um, that would be a very interesting offering. You know, there's a lot of other stuff about uh, really highlighting the best players and the best tournaments. You know, so that leads to like lengthening certain tournaments, increasing the um, responsibilities of the best players to play in the biggest events yeah and you know coming back to the uh to the 250s i mean they they kind of get uh in the initial version of this they kind of got worked over pretty good that sense has been dialed back a bit but i could see a situation too where some um 250 level tournament sanctions come up and just disappear and are not filled um i think that's actually a solution to some of their calendar issues is to have less events and just take the crappiest ones and not replace them. Yeah. So, um, so to pause on that a bit, like one of the, for example, like expanding more masters events to being 10 day events would lead to this proposal, like both Cincinnati and Canada becoming 10 day events. And yeah, in, which would, instead of taking up two weeks on the calendar, they would take up three together as a back to back thing, yeah. which would squeeze out like Atlanta, I believe would be the one that would probably be caught in that. Uh, I'm not sure that that really helps anybody. I got to say, I mean, okay, I think that it's useful if you're a tournament and you get to be over two weekends. I think that's a big deal. Um, but like Canada would have like a like a Tuesday or Wednesday final in this scenario, which I think would just be weird for a Masters event yeah. or a big tournament. Um, and so I'm, I'm a little confused at why they think that's 
a big benefit to them. I I'm all for ten, tennis taking more advantage of weekends. Like I've said before, I thought I think that like it'd be great for Grand Slams to start their play on the you know the Friday night or Saturday before uh, the Monday instead of starting on a Monday morning, which is I think the worst time to start, to start a big sporting event, uh, which they currently do. But yeah, but I I think that it's sort of it it's the big ones getting bigger and things getting more rigid and. I don't know. I, it goes against what I was saying at the beginning of the show about liking the sort of dynamic, uh, more flexible nature of, of the sport. And maybe, and, and I don't know if players will respond to having to play these tournaments. We're at an interesting stage now where so many of the biggest stars in the sport, all of them pretty much are in their like late thirties or mid late thirties. And, and now at veteran and the Williams is actually both 40. Now do we, do, will players like, really buy into playing a really robust or sorry a really rigid schedule of having to hit every masters event with no flexibility because if they don't do that then this it's just a lose-lose across the board if you have more you know if you have fewer tournaments with still not good attendance it doesn't work I'm, I'm yeah it's hard sure to that, say too because the the and the and the players experiences are also different i mean some some would at the lower end would say well a, a bigger masters tournament's great because it's a bigger field and i'm going to get this first round money from a masters tournament as opposed yeah. to you know which you could even i've never i haven't looked at this ever but you know potentially you could go to like the quarterfinals of a 250 and make less than you might make in the first round of a oh, bigger tournament or you yeah. know something like that so it may you know so others are going to look at it like more opportunity. But I also think that, like, I don't know exactly what the tournaments gain for having bigger draws all the time. Because those early round matches, like Indian Wells, let's say, uh, which is a 96-player draw, you're not making much money on those on that first round. You know, yeah. like, you, the stands are not going to be as full. They're during the week, I guess, there, which is more. And you're having players who are all, like, you have no players in the top, roughly top 40 playing yeah. on the first I think that's a player event. benefit. Yeah. It's a player event. benefit. Yeah, but I remember having this conversation when we had episode earlier this year on the Rotterdam tournament uh, back in February or March. And they, uh, David Vakian, who's our sort of Dutch correspondent, was saying that uh, the ATP had come to Rotterdam saying, we want you to expand from being a 32 draw to a 48 draw. And Rotterdam was like, no, we don't want to do that. Those, those, you know, the six, adding 16 lesser players to our draw gives us no benefit and only dilutes it and has us have to take, take care of more people and more expenses. Like we're not doing that. And so, and as much as there is a push from players and PTPA and stuff to have more more job opportunities, there's going to be natural pushback from tournaments on just purely getting fields that they might see as being more bloated. You've wonderfully illustrated the challenge he has in getting this plan passed is everybody has their own, in tennis, everybody has their own concerns and they're very yeah. unique and different. And uh, so they passed, um, he said about 70% of it is okay but that the whole thing it's either a pass or fail like the whole thing goes or none of it does which i thought was really interesting and i'm sure ramps up the pressure on him and the you know some of the remaining stuff is definitely the most challenging i mean schedule is is number one on there so how do you how do you make this fit like and and yeah. like you said it just being longer doesn't mean being better you know like yeah. i mean you could be could be missing an, an important weekend window so um honestly my feeling about it getting passed is is split and honestly like if if it doesn't pass i mean i i think godenzi's kind of like a lame duck <laughs> mm. you know i mean it was this it was his big thing you know and i i feel like uh 
I don't know. It's just uh, if it doesn't pass, I think it really will underscore the difficulties that tennis is facing. And, and I'm not sure like where the sport would go next. I mean, I'm not saying this plan is perfect, but it's better than anything anybody else has come up with as far as bringing the sport together and moving yeah. forward together, which is the hardest thing to do in this sport. One last question before I let you go. And I know you're tight on time. Uh how in we talked about this through good density and long-term lens but a lot of these tournaments we're talking about canada cincinnati whatever else are combined events how much are the women involved in these conversations with wta and their leadership and or how much are they just sort of the, in the being backseat passengers while the the men yeah steer that's yeah that's a good question the wta has been involved with the strategic plan for sure like uh, like all of them have you know even the slams you know how much uh, ability they have to impact it is not clear to me. You know, I would yeah. say this is probably a male driven thing, which is funny because, you know, women's tennis is the paradigm for women's sports <laughs> as far as right. success. And, and even in, even in this arena, they, they get shunted to the backseat some. So I don't know, you know, and I think that's where people, people get worried about the ATP and WTA being closer together is ATP, you know, men are often and always going to take precedence in a lot of people's eyes and, and, uh, you know, the WTA is like a special, unique thing um, that's been created. Yeah. So that, uh, that'll that be really challenging for them to navigate. Yeah. And even when women's tennis is doing a lot of things really well, you know, by both their work and also by just luck of having someone like an Emiratu Kanu, you know, materialize yeah. as being this massive new star out of nowhere, uh, who sort of seems like she's like factory made with all the different markets she touches in Britain and China yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. ATP hasn't come up with anybody like that. But also, I think just in terms of a joint management style, yeah, the, the men are going to be domineering in the in the boardrooms and in the you know conversations about whatever tennis united it may be so yeah it's an interesting it's, it's tough to know as much as the concept of uniting is always seems positive the a lot of things have to go right for it to be a good deal for for both sides yeah i, th- I think uh i i'm suspicious that and this is a joke but uh <laughs> that radicanu was came out of a lab uh at bradenton florida at the img academy <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a yes, she's not lab. actually from Bradenton. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. But yeah, but yeah, completely. Like, yeah. it's it's unbelievable. Like how, I mean, there's I think every reason to think she could be like could pass Osaka in earnings like within the next you know year. Especially who knows what has happened with Osaka, but like she could go yeah. being one of the highest paid female athletes in the world. Very, well, very and fast. then again, that's that's you know that's another reason to think about the China thing. You know, then yeah, exactly that, why that yeah. why that probably won't go away so fast. <laughs> no, it, I don't think I don't think anyone wants it to go away at all. But like, it's just an interesting it's and I'm not saying the WTA at all was wrong for going after that money and, and investing in China and building around China. I mean, I think this was a pretty unforeseeable thing to have this pandemic come and really, you know, wall off. Uh, that's not a great wall joke, but it could be China, um, you know, uh, <laughs> right. from the world in this way uh, for so long. But yeah, things will get back to some sort of normal and the things in tennis will stay messy. Brett, yeah, thank you for wading into the mess with me and look forward to your future reporting on these things. Yeah, we'll do it again. I, f- I feel like, I mean, there's a lot, strategic plan and PTPA, there's like a lot to keep an eye on over the next six months. I think like very pivotal things will potentially occur. So yeah, we'll see. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Take care. So thank you very much to Brett for coming on NCR, and thank you to you guys for listening, and thank you to those very special ones of you who have supported us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. We have two new Patreon backers uh, to thank since our last episode recorded. They are 
Peter Frey and Rumdwal Wong. So thank you to both of them. And thank you to our Slam Champ backers. We thank every episode. Susanna W., Sean Mulroy, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Sean Simeon, James Hindle, Antonio Maycumber, Anna Valinder, Timothy Liu, and Ashley Keel, and our GOAT backers, Nicole Copeland, Pam Shriver, and J.O.D. Until next time, which will be pretty soon. Bye, guys.